0: Uh, So, in order for us to understand queer college students from rural areas, we need to kind of look at where they came from, like Heather was saying, so um, I do want to say that many queer students value and identify with their experience and acceptance and inclusion in these areas, in these rural areas. They appreciate a close-knit community and they're connected to their rural
1: Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I am your host, Heather Shea. Today we are exploring the experiences of queer students from rural areas with two scholars and two practitioners. Student Affairs Now is a premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find us at studentaffairsnow.com on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by Anthology. Learn more about their innovative data-driven platforms to build and foster your campus student engagement experience. Learn more by visiting anthology.com slash engage. This episode is also brought to you by Stylus. Visit styluspub.com and use promo code SA now for 30% off and free shipping. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. And I am broadcasting from East Lansing, Michigan on the campus of Michigan State University, where I serve as the Director of Women's Student Services and Interim Director of the Gender and Sexuality Campus Center. I am also an affiliate faculty member in the MSU Student Affairs Administration Master's Program. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples. The university resides on land seated in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Let's get to our conversation and I'll have each of you introduce yourselves and welcome to the podcast. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to tell us a little bit about um, both your work and your scholarship And I'm gonna start with Baker. If you could start by telling us a little bit about you, your current role and maybe your pathway into the work that you do now. So welcome.
2: Thank you. Um, So my name is Baker Rogers. Um, I'm an associate professor of sociology at Georgia Southern University. Um, My research focuses on gender and sexuality and specifically how it intersects with location. Um, Most of my research is centered in the Southeastern United States. Um, And also I look at the differences between rural and urban um, experiences in specifically in regards to gender and sexuality. Um, Yeah, so that's how I got into this. Uh, That was my research and Kip reached out to me and asked me to work on this article with him, uh, this chapter we wrote together and I'm very excited to be here to talk about it.
1: Thanks so much for being here, I appreciate it. Uh, Julia, welcome to Student Affairs Now.
3: Hi, thank you. Uh, my name is Julia Kelleher, she her pronouns. I'm the director of the LGBTQA office um, here in uh, the University of Idaho here located in the northern part of Idaho in Moscow. Um, I've been in this role for nine years. This is my ninth academic year and kind of a fun tidbit for the podcast. Uh, Heather was the person who hired me for this position way back in 2012, which was my first professional position out of grad school. So got some connection there. Um, and uh yeah so the University of Idaho is um in a very rural area and so I've been working with rural queer and transgender students um through my roles here and um and I'm also a graduate student here at the University of Idaho but doctoral student this is my th- uh, finishing up the first semester of my third year.
1: Congrats Dr. Kelleher to be Very exciting. Um, Yes, when I read this uh, chapter in the New Directions series, I was like, oh my gosh, I have to get Julia because of all of our shared past at the University of Idaho. So glad you're here today. Um, Kip, welcome to Student Affairs Now.
0: Thanks, Heather. Hi, I'm Dr. Carl Sorgan, but my preferred name is Kip. My preferred pronouns are he and him. Uh, I'm an assistant professor of educational leadership at Georgia Southern University. and my focus is higher education, uh, specifically LGBTQ students in higher education. I came to this work, I started as a grad student in the Office of LGBTQ Student Services at New York University. And then I went to Penn State for my doctoral studies and my dissertation looks at the influence of academic outcomes. Our, the influence of sexual identity on academic outcomes for queer college students. So I'm delighted to be here to talk about this. Um, Georgia Southern is the perfect place to do this kind of work for rural students. Um, so thanks to Baker for helping me write the chapter and Lexi and Julia and Heather, I'm delighted to talk with you today.
1: Thanks so much um Lexi welcome to student affairs now I should kind of say welcome back because we have a past also in the previous iteration of the podcast so I'm so happy to see you
4: Yes, it's, I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's been a while since I was running the Twitter back channel for you, but it's It's fun to be back now and, and saying things. Um, I'm Lexi Sylvester. I like a she or a pronoun. I'm the Assistant Director for Equity and Access where I support queer and trans students at Southern Oregon University, which is a very rural university in Oregon. And uh, we are on the occupied land of the Takelma, Shasta and Latgawa peoples. Um, and I am. I'm from rural Oregon. I grew up in a population three thousand town with one high school of three hundred people. As the only out queer person at the at the time, um, I went on to work in K-12 education, where I was a Gay Straight Alliance ad- advisor in New Orleans. And then I really wanted to work with queer and trans students who could sign their own permission slips, which is why I came back to higher education. Um, I have worked at Michigan State as a grad student at University of North Texas, um, and then returned to Oregon to serve queer and trans students with a rural experience like mine. So I'm really excited to be here today because in many ways the the writing we're discussing is really about my experience and the experience of, of other folks I grew up with. Happy to be here.
1: So excited uh, for the conversation just in our prep calls we were getting rolling today we had some really interesting um, dialogue so I love bringing together uh, scholars and practitioners and educators and those who are studying you know in all of our multiple identities Um, so as we've alluded to Kip and Baker recently released a new directions of student services chapter Um, titled Recognizing and Supporting Queer Students from Rural Areas, which we're going to post the link to in our show notes today. Um, And the larger monograph focused broadly on rural students. Um, So maybe, Kip, could you start us out by talking a little bit about that larger project? Um, How did the editors of that monograph define rural?
2: Well,
0: actually, Heather, we don't. There are over two dozen definitions of rural used by federal agencies in the United States. There are also some considerable differences among those federal definitions. Some use administrative concepts, some use land use concepts, some use economic concepts. So, in the, in the issue that we wrote, we didn't or edited, we didn't define rural. The literature on college students from rural areas typically includes definitions provided by the USDA's Economic Research Service, the ERS, or the National Center for Education Statistics, the NCES. The ERS uses county a countywide system and then the NCES uses school districts. Um, and within those school districts, they're categorized as rural, town, suburban, and city districts. And then within the rural districts, they're categorized as fringe, distant, or remote, depending on how far they are away from an urban center. So you can see that there's really no one definition of rural. The United States federal government can't even decide on that.
1: That is fascinating. I I. Uh hadn't really thought about all the different ways that it could be constructed, right? My guess is that there's definitely a a mindset or sociological component to this as well. Um, Maybe you could talk a little bit about like why specifically this monograph um, came to be? Why why explore rural college students in general?
0: So the driver of this monograph was Dr. Elise Kane, who's a colleague of mine here in, uh, in educational leadership at Georgia Southern. And she wanted to produce this uh, new directions of student services, took the lead on it, asked me to co-edit and also Dan Calhoun who's in my program, we co-edited it, um, contacted some great scholars. The volume starts out with place-based identity as a model. So thinking about um, identity characteristics using location of where people grew up as a model for that. Then we talk about urban normativity in the university and how urban normativity influences the university and then the impact of advising on sense of belonging. So that kind of frames it. Then we get into specific identities. So social class, uh, and then African-American students, indigenous students, Latinx students, and then what Baker and I wrote, recognizing and supporting queer students.
1: That's great. So Baker, maybe you could go into talking a little bit about kind of this concept of urban normativity. um, And then also what drew you into this topic of exploring the intersection of queer identities and rural identities?
2: Um, Like Lexi stated in their introduction or her introduction, excuse me, um, she she, um, grew up in this experience, right? So, so did I, I grew up in rural South Carolina I went to school, uh, undergrad in rural South Carolina. I went to grad school in rural Mississippi, been all over and now at Georgia Southern in rural Georgia. So I've been all over the Southeast in the rural areas. And so um, a lot of it was my interest in my own experiences and the experiences of others like me and um, really also just getting the word out. that queer people are here in the South, in the rural areas, because that goes back to your question of the urban normativity and metro normativity. Um, this idea that queer people always migrate to the cities and prefer to live in cities. Um, and I that wasn't the my experience or the experience of others like me, so I wanted to really um, use my research to shine a light on queer people in all locations. Um, And specifically because of the need for more resources that are ignored when we take this urban normative um, perspective of queer issues.
1: Yeah, so talk a little bit about maybe, you know, some of the concerns that there is kind of this belief or or gap in the understanding of queer people living in rural areas. What are some of the concerns potentially that queer people in rural areas face?
2: Yeah, I mean, queer people in rural areas face a lot of the same challenges, but then also additional challenges because of the lack of resources. Um, the this question of do queer people move to the city? I, it, <laughs> I what I was thinking about this question before the podcast. I, The only way I could answer it was like, yeah, some people do, some queer people do, some don't, just like cisgender and heterosexual people. Some move to the city, some don't. Um, When we were talking about earlier how you define rural, um, I usually define rural or southern in my research based on where respondents say is rural and southern because it's all about an experience, right? Um, And some people prefer that experience to the urban life. So um, I think... um, Research shows us that not all queer people move to the city. It's a very uh, white, gay, male perspective. That's also very dated, I think. Um, So queer people are everywhere and are thriving everywhere. And we need to um, make sure we're doing things to provide the extra resources needed in rural areas because sometimes you have to travel so far to get healthcare, um, to get, just information and things. The internet has changed a lot for rural queer people, um, but you still have to travel a lot to get the resources we need. So we, we have to bring light, shed light on these populations.
1: So I'll open this up to other folks, other perceived concerns that, you know, potentially face queer people in rural areas or in your experiences.
0: Well, in some of the research that I was studying, there's increased visibility because there are fewer queer people in rural areas. So they're more visible. There are fewer resources, like Baker mentioned, and there's also less social support for queer people in rural areas. So those are some considerations. And also, I found that queer people come out in rural areas at about the same rate as they do in urban environments or suburban environments about 10%. So there's really no difference in how how many people are coming out from a rural area versus an urban area.
1: Anything you'd add, Julia or Lexi? Yeah.
4: It's it's really funny as we like discuss rurality, um, my partner and I are both from rural Oregon and we have like debate about because I'll be like, you're not from rural Oregon, I'm from rural Oregon, like you're from the city, we, this is a thing we argue about regularly, and I, my qualifications are always like, how far are you from, like, the nearest Walmart or Target, like, that is how I define morality in a lot of ways, and I'm like, I was an hour away from the nearest Walmart or Target, you had one, like, 10 minutes away, where you grew up, it's not rural, but to Kip's point, like, that's, that's not really what it's about, and when I, when I think of this idea of, moving to the city, it's so funny because that was out, you know, I'm sure it was part of your experience too, Baker, but like the conversation we're talking about today is actually like, I work at an institution that represents a version of Lexi that could have been, but my, my parents were like, no, you need to go to University of Oregon for college, which they were, I was really blessed that they were both like emotionally and financially supportive of that because they were like, you need to get out of here and go to the city, right? So it, there's I serve students today that are are continuing most often a rural experience, and I think it's really it's really interesting that that narrative even amongst parents amongst teachers really still exists of encouraging people to go to where the queerness is, which is in town.
3: Yeah, I was going to mention I'm kind of I'm a transplant uh, to Idaho. I was not from here. I'm originally from um, Iowa, which. I would say it's not as rural as places I live here now, like very much so. Cause my town where I'm from is uh, my city had, you know, multiple WalMarts, and targets. If we're going to use it for like uh, a capitalistic <laughs> like view that. of how we do that. Um, but um, being a transplant here, when I moved out, I'm originally from the Midwest. So I was living in Minnesota at the time in grad school when I moved out here and everyone was very concerned that I took a job in Moscow, Idaho. And it became like a, like a, like a safety concern, like people pulling me aside and being like, do you really know where you're moving to? Like, are you going to be safe? Are there going to be other queer people in, in your town? And it was a misconception of living in a smaller space because Moscow, for those who you know the random few people that are aware with it is it's kind of we call it like the blue oasis in a red state. Um, Idaho <laughs> is extremely conservative, but Moscow is a true and true college town. So we have you know population of about what, like thirty two thousand people, and um, we recently just got a Target like a month ago. Our Target opened, so um, and we have a Chipotle over in Pullman. So my life is set. I don't need to go to Spokane anywhere. Go to Lewiston or Spokane. Yeah. <laughs> know, Lewiston is, no, but like, that's the thing is that Moscow is surrounded by these pockets of rural, rurality that is sometimes actively hostile. Mm-hmm. And so when students come from these areas, like Idaho is a very large state and people don't realize the size of Idaho is primarily um, rural and honestly forest land, national forest land and unused land, um, wildlife land. So, When you're coming from these little tiny towns, like even Lewiston, which is, you know, 45,000 people, about 45 minutes south of here, um, Lewiston was one of the first places that I ever saw people openly walking around that were white nationals Mm. coming from the Midwest to here. And so there's this understanding that um, for queer folks, it can be sometimes uncomfortable and at the very least and dangerous if we go adventure into these smaller towns um, where we may not be welcomed.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when we moved from Tucson to Moscow, um, thinking, well, I'll live in Pullman because that's at least in the state of Washington. And then I realized, actually, it's better to live in Moscow. <laughs> it's yeah. like a really great, cool little blue dot, as you said.
2: Um, I am um, curious if... Can I add Yeah, one go thing. ahead. Oh, sorry. Sure. Sorry, I was just gonna say, I think it's interesting too, though, um, being from a rural area, like my family would have been more worried about me if I move to an urban area because they're scared of urban crime right and also the Mm -hmm. racism mixed in what that means Uh, so I think a lot of times we push um, more feminine gay people to move to the city but masculinity my masculinity is still more accepted in the rule and my family is not so fearful so I think we we are going to talk about this a little later about how it's not monolithic identity, and mm-hmm. who's pushed away from the rural areas, and who's who's pushed to the city, and who's pushed to stay in the country. <laughs> um, often looks very different depending on masculinity and femininity.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And I also want to note for those who are listening, uh, you know, all of all of us appear white. I don't know if we all identify as white, but like the other intersecting identity piece, there is that. You know, when we think about rural areas are we also talking about the prevalence of whiteness Um, and Julia mentioned white, you know, nationals and the list. So, I think it's hard to talk about just one aspect of rurality right it it has lots of lots of layers. Um, And we could go down a whole other path so I'm going to pull I'm going to pull this back. because I am really interested about this kind of precursor to the college experience. And so Kip, can you talk a little bit about what the literature says about the kind of kindergarten through high school experience of queer students from rural areas and you know, what might be happening right before they come to college um, and, and the prevalence of supportive environments or not um, in those spaces?
0: Sure. Uh, so in order for us to understand queer college students, From rural areas, we need to kind of look at where they came from, like Heather was saying. So um, I do want to say that many queer students value and identify with their experience and acceptance and inclusion in these areas, in these rural areas. They appreciate a close-knit community, and they're connected to their rural roots. So I don't want to say that rurality is not good for all queer students. Mm. It can be good for, for queer students, but In reviewing the literature, what the literature says is queer students from rural rural schools are more frequently victimized. They experience higher rates of bias language, victimization, and anti-LGBTQ discrimination in policies uh, and in practices. And when they do report incidences, half of them said that they were completely ineffective in the reporting uh, response. We also have teachers who are underprepared to talk Mm -hmm. about queer issues in these schools. They may be underprepared and they may be not um, recommended to talk about these issues in -hmm. in rural schools. Um, They might receive little training, little in-service training on how to talk about queer issues or address queer issues. Um, For social support, we know that queer students in rural areas more frequently utilize GSAs, gay-straight alliances. So they're looking for social support. However, only half of the institutions or half of the school districts offer a gay-straight alliance compared with suburban or urban schools. So there are fewer gay-straight alliances, but yet the students use them even more. So they're looking for social support Um, But I I do want to mention that a lot of students thrive in, a lot of queer students thrive in rural areas, um, but a lot of them move too.
2: Uh, Can I give a a shameless plug here for my, um, me and another sociology and a K-12 educator um, just wrote a textbook called Gender and sexuality in the classroom and educators guide um, is going to be released within the next year with rutledge eye on education series and i as a sociologist was a, I was very surprised and very disappointed to find that there are no textbooks like this for teacher training um, there were some other books about education gender and sexuality that came out in the last few years but not a single textbook for teaching this to K through 12 educators. Um, so we wrote the textbook and um, I hope that educators will um, use it as, I mean, it's just a starting point of like, this is what it is and this is how to be empathetic and listen to our students so that they have better experiences whether wherever they are. Um, and I think it's vital that all K through 12 educators get some of that training, at least a class of something. <laughs>
4: I I am um, so are there any other folks who have been in the classroom who have done K12 teaching on the call? It's just me. I I have to admit when I re- read the portion of the of the chapter that discusses teacher preparation, I felt a little defensive. I get very defensive of teachers as a former teacher and the child of two public school teachers. Um, because I think so and and it, it is a good point, right? My defensiveness is my issue, <laughs> not the author's. Um, but but I think that so often we fall back on teacher preparation and teacher training when we talk about K-12 settings. And, and I think that that's true, but I really wanna highlight that I, you know, I taught in an urban school, and I was actively and violently discouraged from mm-hmm. doing any sort of LGBT education. My the GSA that I co-founded with students started out as a club under a different name. It was closeted, um, and then when it came out, my students were told that what they were doing was disgusting, and I faced it. I faced disciplinary action, right? so and I don't feel that anyone's saying that's not the case, but you know it's not it's not a monolith, and I think that the history of our schools also matters so much um, when we when we think about that k twelve experience, and there there are certainly trends, but i I always worry about underscoring teacher preparation um, because i in some ways I think there's no training, you know. And and I just conducted training for for an entire district that's going through. They recently fired two uh, administrators um, who were promoting, you know, we're seeing right now nationally a lot of movement on discouraging LGBT education in K-12 settings. Um, and these folks were part of that movement. You can check it out; it's really wild. I, I can't remember the name. I'll, I'll look it up, and you, you can check out their website. But they, they were they were fired. They were terminated for their work. Mm. Um, I offer. I did training for that whole district, a really rural district. Um, and then um, those teachers were actually just reinstated, and there was a school walkout and protest last night about their reinstatement. And so th- there's. In this really rural place and so, and so I think there are so many factors that go into this beyond teacher uh, preparation it's about school board makeup it's about so so many things which I think you all are acknowledging as well I'm just defensive of teachers <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's okay Lexi yeah I I think it's a fascinating conversation I also um am, am engaged in some um international conversations about how we're preparing teachers through a study abroad that I lead. And I am learning that in the Netherlands and Belgium, like they do a better job actually of addressing issues of um, sexual and gender diversity in their classes. Um, We pretend like it doesn't exist here, I think sometimes. Um, So I'm glad to hear that there's a textbook. So Lexi and Julia, you both work in centers. um, And I do think what's fascinating is that our centers, I also direct a and the interim director of a center, you know, are often this place of, of, of community development and, you know, interaction between and among students from various backgrounds. Um, And where, regardless of where the institution is located, you know, students come from all over, you know, so even in Idaho, right, you can have people from downtown Boise um, coming to the University of Idaho that choose to come to Idaho school, that's the better, no, I'm kidding. Um, But I am really curious, Julie, if you wanna talk a little bit about kind of what are the interactions that you notice among students who may come from different backgrounds, um, rural and urban?
3: Yeah. It's kind of interesting you say that because I mainly went to a memory I had where we, I try to go to like every recruitment event that is like tabling or like sharing event that I'm allowed to go to. And I remember, um, I had a, a student who came in from LA, Los Angeles, and um, their parents were concerned about coming to such a rural place in Idaho, having this stereotype of being um, not welcoming to queer and transgender people. And I hosted a breakout session so people could talk about like what's like to be a vandal and being queer and trans and um i was like oh yeah we have lots of students involved There are going to be people here and then unfortunately they were the only ones that showed up to that session and so it's just me sitting in front of this powerpoint slide going like we, we there's queer and trans people here i promise it's not just me it's not just like just happened to be bad luck and like i had to reassure these par- this parent from california southern california that, the, that there were going to be students for their student to interact with and i, I ended up getting to know their student really well and they succeeded but um, it, I, we have a combination of folks here because we have, you know, recruiting across the Western United States, and um, University of Idaho is very much marketed as a budget-friendly um, mm. hometown alternative. Particularly during the co- during COVID, and the pandemic, um, if folks are familiar with, if they've seen national news about Idaho, we are um, very. The state is very hesitant to do any sort of mass mandates, vaccine mandates, or um, Uh, social distancing. And when, um, you know, the University of Idaho, we've been in person since about June or July of 2020. So the the, the distancing was that. So we're definitely getting more students from more uh, urban areas because we're promoting this like traditional college experience in the time of COVID. So students can come to campus, go to events, um, and live their best life with Um, fewer restrictions than they would another school in the area that may be still remote or um, distance learning. Uh, So like we're we're seeing students you know from Portland, Seattle, uh, California, Colorado like I work with students all over the place and uh, there definitely is a little bit of a culture shock I feel for especially for our trans students coming into a space where There's a very few resources medically um, or affirmative uh, care that they can go to and provide them with um, proper support. And I think, the you know, and so that's that's that could be a concern as you come from big urban places where like, oh, I have a doctor and I see for my gender affirming hormone care. And then I get to Idaho and they're searching for the few one or the, you know, there's only like four or five providers in this area that will provide gender affirming care that is not Planned Parenthood. Um, and, you know, obviously Planned Parenthood is over, uh, is 15 or 20 minutes away, which is not that big a deal for urban folks, but a lot of our students don't drive or don't have vehicles on campus, and we have no public transportation getting them to and from these two different communities. And so that's a lot of walking the distance if they need to walk or finding you know rides and like rideshare is just getting into moscow like we just recently had this big announcement that uber was coming to moscow so we're kind of always behind the times when it comes to these kinds of things so um it can be kind of a a hard interact a hard uh a hard balance when coming from more urban areas but um, when it comes to like student interactions i don't really see any big difference the students come to campus and they succeed. And I think uh, a lot of our students are from Southern Idaho. That's where the primary bulk of our student population comes from. And so they've kind of, sometimes they have very similar experiences and the students who are local to Moscow are usually the the minority in that.
1: Lexi, what about you? Talk a little bit about the specific gaps you see on your campus. Um, yeah.
4: Absolutely. You know, I think, so I think that a gap that exists on many campuses that I can say our campus is actually doing really well is specific to trans healthcare, kind of, kind of as Mm -hmm. Julia was talking about. So, and I've worked at campuses that are, are lots of different ways on this issue, but if you are a trans student at Southern Oregon University, you can, you can start HRT pretty much immediately. We have somebody who's doing treatment at our health center, and that's a really uncommon experience. Um, And so, and they're doing it on an informed consent basis. You don't need a letter from a therapist, right? Like this is like pretty wildly unheard of. And so a lot of what I do is like pre-meetings kind of para-counseling with people to like make them now that there's no barrier, sometimes I watch students be like, oh, I thought it would be harder. I thought I'd have more time to adjust to the idea of starting hormone replacement therapy. And so um, I, I do a lot of that, but many campuses don't have that surface service, it's pretty unheard of and awesome. And so I think when we, we, and we'll get to recommendations later, but I'm like, how can you work and advocate for that to exist at your college campus as a student affairs professional is one of the really big things you can do. Not that everybody wants to do hormone replacement therapy, but offering it and vocally offering it so that it's not some backdoor thing where you have to know the person who will give you the referral to the nurse practitioner, who will give you the boy juice is like very important. I also think that one one big gap that I see is we have a lot of trans students who are looking for these very direct services that. um, In student affairs, we don't always want to connect them to exactly like I think in student affairs, one of the things that annoys me the most that I fall into and other people fall into is what I call fake resourcing, which is where Mm -hmm. I give you a list of links, so that you can figure it out yourself. Um, And for for rural students, this is particularly hazardous, because that list of links often will involve many, many steps to get to the thing right because we're geographically far away from it. Um, Maybe the thing is only open at certain times it really depends what it is and so i'm really focusing with my staff and student staff on how can we say we're contracting with a voice coach. And all you have to do is fill out this Google form, and then you have an appointment with the voice coach, a really direct and simple service. Um, I think the pandemic has actually been really, you know, it's, it's hard to silver, try to silverline something that has been like emotionally and physically devastating and deadly for so many people. I think that for trans healthcare, the huge array of options that have popped up for telehealth are such mm-hmm. key. And I think for rural campuses really focusing on yeah you can be a rural queer and trans person and a lot of those resources still exist in the city, but now we have all these ways to link you to them and it can just happen for you, I mean that that didn't, I'm seeing a doctor from my hormone replacement therapy who's based in Portland, which everybody thinks all of Oregon is Portland. It's not, most of Oregon votes red by county in presidential elections, actually. It's just a few really big places that vote blue, just like everywhere else. It was wild. My mm-hmm. parents, when I moved to Texas, were like, you're moving to Texas, similar to, I think somebody else said this on the call, you're moving to Texas, oh my God. And I actually experienced a lot more bias and discrimination here in rural Oregon than I ever did in the greater Dallas area. So, Those are some some of the gaps that I think are really affecting our students. And then just super briefly, I think that we can do such a better job as student affairs professionals in having strong relationships with gay-straight alliances at rural rural schools um, Mm -hmm. and really bridging folks to higher education um, and not just to higher education in urban or metroplex areas but bridging to, yeah, you can continue your rural experience here and be close to your family and there's community happening at this school and you can kind of continue, you know, usually folks who are in the GSA kind of want to do some sort of campus organizing when they get to a campus and showing them how that can go on is, is really important. And those are also hard relationships to cultivate. So those are some of the things that I think.
1: That's great. Other, other comments or thoughts? About um, gaps or differences between students? Baker or Kip? Okay.
0: Well, I think identifying students from rural areas is a challenge in and of itself. Um, It's not something that they wear on their sleeve generally. Unless they identify to you, Mm. you don't really know whether or not the students are from a rural area.
1: Yeah, that's a good, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, I wanted to um, also jump, I think we kind of have alluded to the ways in which the pandemic has affected um, our engagement with students in general, but I am curious um, if we have some examples or stories of, and, and Julius may, may or may not apply to you in your campus experience since um, Idaho is spared the, the, the pandemic all around, <laughs> um, <laughs> but Lexa, maybe you could talk a little bit about how remote learning affected or the stories that you've heard about how um, being at home potentially um, affected the queer and trans students on your campus.
4: Absolutely. You know, it's challenging when home environments are not supportive of queer and trans students, both in K-12 education and in higher education. Um, And we absolutely saw that. I, I don't think that I'm alone in having really kind of fostered communities on Discord. If you're not aware mm-hmm. of Discord, yeah. it's um, sort of, it's a social media platform, but you kind of, it's more curated and that you're not broadcasting to the whole world and anyone can add you, you make things called servers that people then can join. It's sort of similar and from the same makers of Slack, maybe if you've used that from work and in a Discord server, you can have different thematic channels and, kind of get organized and hang out with people, their video rooms. And I saw students really leaning on those heavily. And I think queer and trans students actually for a long time, and I've done some work in scholarship about this in the past, have leaned on digital communities. And I think that the pandemic really made folks double down because that was kind of the option, especially on campuses that closed, um, which ours did for much of the pandemic. So I think an increased emphasis on online communities, I think we've seen more opportunities for trans healthcare. We've also seen a lot of isolation. You know, one of the things that you may not know you can do as a student affairs professional that I've done many times, especially during the pandemic is to help students pursue dependency overrides so that they can be financially separated from their parents who may be using the threat of uh, not supporting tuition for a student as a way to make them not come out is a really common mm-hmm. tactic that I see. I, you know, I have I have conversations with students about that. I would say at least monthly, and and so shepherding a student through that dependency override is something I've done a lot in the pandemic, so that their parents don't have that way to manipulate them because they're eligible for more aid. Are they taking on more loans? Yes. Are they less suicidal? Also yes. Um, I think being with home with family is a real challenge, and leaning on those digital communities is more important now than ever to call back a 2019 uh, talking point of many people.
3: <laughs> yeah, Discord is, uh, is highly used in our campus too, at least for the students that I work closely with, um, using Discord both when the pandemic did start, we did we did quarantine here in Idaho at the University of Idaho for around uh, like three or four months, and then we re- we opened back up and um, our campus opened up in for the 2000, uh, 2020 fall twenty twenty year, um, and it's it was hard because we would open up, but then also the students were primarily doing remote classes because a lot of the instructors would have Zoom classes, and so a lot of our students were stuck in their residence halls or their Greek houses. Um, on our campus or in their apartments which are off-campus apartments and I think that led to an increased isolation also because there really was no um, no outlet for them to get together like for um, like social support but also too we also saw an increase of bias incidences occurring in our residence halls where students would have things Mm. said to them or vandalism because everyone was kind of they were so cooped up together in one small space, which I know seems counterintuitive in a pandemic. We have everyone together in these like buildings, um, but like they weren't allowed to go to each other's floors or um, go to like, you know, each other's common rooms. So a lot of people were just with their suite mates, so their roommates in these small areas and there was an increase in discrimination and bias that occurred. Um, but uh, having the online support was really great. We actually uh, had a panic moment when we did go offline in March of 2020 because, the University of Idaho at the time didn't have first name changes without a legal name change in our system. And we were um, a lot of the, the supportive faculty and myself and Dean Students staff and other staff for our equity and diversity unit, we were scrambling to figure out ways that we can encourage faculty to ensure that trans students weren't being outed in their mm. classes going from online to that. Now, thankfully, Zoom is a much more flexible option. But BB, we were you know, transitioning away from BB Learn this semester, but we were still using Blackboard Learn. And we did not have name changes in our banner mm. system. And so the pandemic really sparked that call for the our university our president Green to um, push for the ITS our information services to um, implement the first name changes and that is something I've been working on since I started at the University of Idaho you know, eight years ago and that was a huge game changer for our students because we, we they were allowed to change their first names and without a legal name change because in Idaho legal name changes a surprisingly complicated process Mm. and I'm not sure with other states and more rural areas but in Idaho to change your name you not only have to go through the court system but you have to list your name change in our newspaper for one week to ensure Mm. you know so um, students have to pay for both the new newspaper listing and the um, the court costs um, which can be prohibitive for students in lower you know reserved incomes Uh, so that's that that made things hard but It's kind of a positive and negative thing, but also to seeing the revitalization of students excited to come in and do stuff like our gender and sexuality alliance, which was um, a long lasting student organization kind of disappeared during the pandemic and it's been back and in full swing and very involved and the students are very excited to get and do stuff especially our returner students are are, our first second years and third years are ready to go out there and like go to events and talk to groups and organize and do activism because they didn't have the opportunity during their first year.
1: So let's turn to the question about our population not being monolithic, right? So what are some of the needs of trans students, BIPOC queer students? Um, And Kip, do you wanna kick us off and then we'll kind of work around this question and talk some more um, about intersections of identity?
0: So when we think about intersectional perspectives or intersections of identity, in the volume that we wrote, um, we talk about the reconceptualized model of multiple dimensions of identity. So people have a lot of different identities that they bring to the table that are part of their that's part of their core, their nucleus of being. Uh, and as we were writing this, we wanted to think about place-based as an identity. At uh, least Kane wrote a chapter on what it means to be rural or from a rural area and how that influences one's identity. But there are, uh, we acknowledge that there are multiple layers or characteristics of identities. Uh, somebody else wanna jump off of that?
4: Yeah, I think so, absolutely. And and I, I also think You know, in student affairs, when we're conceptualizing identity, the way, and this relates to some earlier questions too, the way that I think queer and trans rural students conceptualize identity, absolutely aided by online avenues, but I think that Coming from environments where there are not maybe as many out queer and trans people the way that people come to that identity is is really different than folks who come up in a school that has a really active GSA right, which is not many not many of our rural schools as we've already talked about. Um, And so I, I think. In addressing the not a monolith part. I think that. What we really need to be doing as student affairs professionals is really listening and not projecting where we think Mm -hmm. somebody should go And, and this relates a lot to the chapter in not assuming that people will move to urban areas and assuming that the place that they come from matters when I came to Educate higher education, for example, it was the first time that I heard many people like describing themselves and talking about our communities as queer. And it was a different time. And that was like an emerging idea at that time. It's been a few years since I was an undergrad, but that, that was a really big shock for me. And I still see that with queer and trans students who are coming to Southern Oregon University. They haven't heard queer be used in a positive way very much, just to name one thing, right? And so I think checking what can be an assumption. A lot of times student affairs professionals, we wanna know the right way to say it. A lot of times in queer and trans trainings, I'll say this isn't say it right class because even though queer and trans is how I talk about our communities in general, there are people for whom that's a big shock. And this is one really specific example. Um, But I, I think that people are coming from a width and breadth of experience and we need to really challenge ourselves to take a breath and actually listen to what they're saying instead of assuming that we know that what they need to do is move to eugene or move to portland in order to be happy um and i also think that like acknowledging our limitations and being really ready to you know i have for example a, a number of uh, trans folks of color at SOU who are student veterans, and they're student veterans because that helped them go to school and because they saw a way to get some trans affirming healthcare they wouldn't otherwise afford. And they want to talk to folks, trans folks of color, and trans veterans of color. And so, how can you flex your network to set up those connections so that folks can talk to somebody? like them and, and and of shared experience i think is so pivotal especially in our rural areas where they maybe have they didn't even conceptualize there were other people like that there absolutely are right yeah, yeah.
3: and i think uh oh, sorry i thought i had my um i think that uh too it's 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 hard when you look at the demographics of a lot of our rural institutions like i'm not quite sure how big uh, southern oregon is um, but here at the University of Idaho, we're about uh, like 11,000 students. And then we're, obviously that's, that's not just our, uh, this is much lower for our on-campus, campus residential students here in Moscow. We have centers in Coeur d'Alene, Boise, Idaho Falls, Twin Falls, um, you know, our extension offices, and also then our dual credit um, students so our, like high school students who were Um, and our independent study students from all over the state here. Um, But like looking at the population, so so my office, the LGBTQA office, we're part of the equity and diversity unit. And we're we're pretty revolutionary here in Idaho when it comes to how this structure is made because we wanted to make sure that we have the best setup we could for our identity-based offices um, due to the fact that there is such small student population numbers already there, we're actually in the process right now of hiring a the first director for our brand new Black Student Cultural Center, which uh, is um, not even created yet. They have they have uh, they have a location and they have a need, but we're still in the process of hiring a new mm-hmm. director, which will join. My team um, to provide that support, but are, you know, I'm not going to give exact numbers because I don't want to be wrong. And then my colleagues are like, that's wrong. But um, that, you know, here at the University of Idaho are like our black identified students are less than 200 and are also our Asian Um, identified students and our, you know, indigenous students are less than 200. And our largest population that we record is our Latinx student populations. Obviously, Idaho being a highly agricultural background, we have a large portion of migrant and seasonal farm working students, especially our, um, you know, our nationwide renowned camp program, our college assistance migrant program here. Mm -hmm. So that that makes it hard because we've a lot of siloing, because students are brought into this kind of family-like, uh, very high-touch advising situation, especially because we only track race and ethnicity in our application mm-hmm. materials. And so for my office, at least, a lot of the information that comes is through word of mouth. So students either are interested in it, they're queer, and they're trans, and they want to come to me, but they still have those communities where they're maybe their racial and ethnic communities are part of. And we still have that so we have this understanding that sometimes you have to choose, and we're trying to eliminate that. But also looking at the demographics of like who's working here. I'm a white, um, white non-binary individual who works in this field. I'm getting a lot of white non-binary students coming to my services because they're coming to places where they're pers- they're reflected in how they're yeah. supported. So you get lots of people who are big in geek culture and nerd culture, but and then like our Latinx queer and trans Latinx students on it, um, are using our services, like our office of multicultural affairs and our camp program. Um, but that's where we strive as being a close unit of few professionals that we can mm-hmm. um, provide those, like um, we call like our family events. So we have a lot of family thing things or familia, you know, like these, um, these programs and educational services that are focused on family to try to keep and to try to have some intermingling of our services. But that's something we've been struggling with for years
4: i so, i think to, oh sorry heather
1: so, uh, go ahead i was just going to move us along but make your point yeah
4: <laughs> too to, too long and mm-hmm. the other thing that i think of is you know there, there's nothing natural or supposed to be about the predominant makeup of these rural places being white, right? Like that's a result of the colonization of the United States. I'm in Oregon, which has a history as a as a white exclusionist state. Like there is a reason why rural areas here are majority white. And that has to do with like the violent um the violent cultivation of that idea by white colonizers who like I am descendant from and continue to occupy land as like a history of that legacy. And I think that that's, that's another thing we really need to think of. A lot of times I find myself saying we in training, like when I'm referencing a cultural idea about masculinity, like we think men should do this. I think as student affairs professionals, it's really important that we challenge ourselves when we say things like that, like what we are we talking about? Because when I say that, I'm talking about we as in like mostly like white people in my growing up experience in a rural white community, but indigenous folks, for example, um, experienced like, their we is a lot different and their experience of gender, if we can call it that, because gender is an idea that comes from colonization, is really different, right? And and it's impacted by like, what does it mean when there's a pandemic? And maybe as a queer, trans, two-spirit, indigenous person, you are, you know, watching white folks bungle and mishandle a pandemic and people in your communities and on this land are dying when that land was colonized and occupied in the first place. What does it mean when climate change brought on by industrial revolution from people who colonized this place is impacting salmon populations which are inexplicably linked to gender ideals in your community, right? That climate change has a real impact on how you experience gender. And then you go to a rural institution where Um, The predominant users of queer and trans spaces are white queer people and then experience that violence all over again. And Mm. so how can I I have done a presentation about white by default queer and trans spaces. And, and how you can counter that. And I think it's asking yourself like things, what is the history of where you are meeting in a room or in a building? What songs are you playing or not playing? Who's leading the meetings? How do they happen? Are you using Robert's rules? These are all things that undergird white supremacy in your space and exclude queer and trans folks of color and queer and trans indigenous folks. And how, how can you really subvert those things? And I think this matters even more perhaps at uh, rural serving institutions Um, where folks are coming from communities uh, into a predominantly white institution and then experiencing more harm in those spaces.
1: I think a follow-up conversation is definitely about kind of this intersection of identities with queer um, college students. I think that is a fascinating kind of further uh, piece that we should be unpacking. Um, So thank you for bringing that Lexi um, as well. So Baker, let's turn to resources. I know the chapter does a really good job of outlining what campuses should be thinking about and providing in terms of prep for college life, support for students. Um, can you t- kind of talk through some of the things that you all mentioned, and then we'll put, toss this out to the larger group too.
2: Yeah, of course. Um, so to start with, I mean, schools try to provide this wraparound service, right? For all students and they're not doing a very good job for queer students. So schools need to provide the resources that meet the physical, psychological, educational, and emotional needs of queer students. And when we're specifically thinking about queer students from rural areas, what there are specific needs, Um, So we talked about healthcare. I think healthcare is one of the biggest that we've talked about today quite a bit. Um, And Lexi mentioning the program for trans people at your school, it's just like in Georgia, that would be unheard of. Um, So we have, we're in a rural area. And then students, most of our students come from rural areas in Georgia. And we still don't have the resources, right? It's the biggest city a lot of them have been in and it's still a rural area. So there's nowhere to go to get the resources for especially trans affirming health. Um, And then we talk about things like there needs to be specific um, sexual health information and education because most in Georgia, at least at Georgia Southern, Students coming from rural schools in Georgia um, usually did not receive sex education. If they received it at all, it did not include queer people. It definitely did not include trans people. Um, So sex education and sexual health um, information is necessary um, and and even more necessary for these students, queer students coming from rural areas. Um, I think mental health um, is also an area that's, that's we need to focus on because a lot of these students, the bias around mental health in the South and then also in rural areas is very strong. Um, and coming to a school, it might be the first time they have access to mental health care, but is that mental health care queer friendly um, is a mm. big question that still looms in a lot of schools. Um, I know at Georgia Southern working very hard and there's some people working very hard, but there are also, like th- this bad memory, historical, you know, memory of things not being that great for queer students. So this fear of getting help. Um, so I think that, and then the other issue I'll talk about just briefly that I think we bring up that a lot of the research hasn't talked about a lot is what do we do about students returning home? Whether that be for the summer or whether that be on, fake, on Christmas break or whether that be, um, you know, after they graduate, if they want to return home some place Some students don't have safe places to return to. Um, we've talked about on campus opening up dorm rooms over holidays and things, but nothing has actually happened mm. for, for queer students to stay, um, because there's a sphere like there's a lot of students that have problems at home. But this we also know this is very specific. Um, Homelessness of queer youth and and queer youth being kicked out of their home um, is very specific, especially from these more conservative rural areas. So thinking about how do we support students returning home, how they have to interact with their families. Um, And this made me think about like a lot of the things we said about things moving online for COVID really helped in a lot of ways trans students and queer students. But a lot of our students also had to return home to families that weren't supportive Mm -hmm. and they had to take classes. Like during that semester, I was teaching trans studies and taking a trans studies class in the house with your little siblings or your parents who are not supportive can be very hard. So thinking about um, what that means to return home for queer and trans students, especially in these rural areas where resources are even fewer and far between than they are on our campuses. Um, is a big is a big part of what we need to really
1: focus on. That's great. Thank you um, for that. So um, I'd love to open it up for anyone else who wants to talk about broadly beyond resource centers what recommendations we have for the field, um, maybe things that we should be emphasizing in our professional prep uh, programs and scholarship. I think that this chapter kind of, Opens up a whole field, a whole area of potential scholarship, and some interesting studies maybe down in the horizon. So, other recommendations um, and resources and supports.
2: Well, I
0: think the limited research on this it in, it impacts our practice. So, mm-hmm. I would like to see this as a start, but this go broader uh, and the Mm -hmm. research go broader. So thanks to the folks who are here today and also to anybody who's listening to this who's interested in it. Um, I think we need to ascertain what queer students from rural backgrounds need to be successful. We need to ask them or start thinking about this or keep thinking about this. Likely it's not drastically different from what other queer students need. However, there may be some differences. We also need to question how the ways that we serve students might vary by institutional characteristic, whether the institution is in a rural area or the institution is in an urban environment. And that's really where most of the research on queer rural students has been, as has been of the location of the institution, not necessarily of where the students themselves are coming from. Um, But really, all this revolves around thinking about how urban normative assumptions influence our practice.
1: Hmm. yeah and shout out to another podcast um the rural college student experience podcast i don't know how that how that's inter um interacted at all with your monograph but i do think if we can put more media out there in the world we may be uh, helping to kind of unpack some of these issues in more um direct ways so yeah other thoughts on uh recommendations
4: uh, i think that as a field, we need to, and and I, you know, I chose to do resource center work because I care a lot about this, and so it's it's hard sometimes to take on the the perspective of folks who may be in another functional area, because um, in resource centers we function we function a lot like the deans of students of a really particular group of students. So, you know, that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of how the, how the work is. But I think that when you're looking at your college campus. Um, does your college have a functioning and annually returning group that is by and for black, indigenous and people of color, queer and trans folks? And if it doesn't, then asking yourself, why not? And what am I doing to foster or not foster that group thriving? Because the presence or not, you know, those students are there. It's whether or not they have enough resource, empowerment, money, to do that thing? And how can you, in whatever functional area you're in, be a part of that, you know? And I think that that really looks at challenging your assumptions if, if you are a person in housing and you have found yourself like, oh, why aren't students doing this? You know, like, well, what, what could I do to make this possible? How could I reach out to a student and say, have you, have you thought about starting this? I think it would be great. Here are some funds for it. Here's a space where you could meet, like this would be such an exciting thing if you want, or what is it that you and your community need, right? Asking those very real questions instead of sending people lists of links to the Trevor Project, which is not helpful. Mm-hmm.
1: So let's go to final thoughts. I know we could keep going. Um, and so if you have remaining uh, comments about any of the other questions we didn't get to, please add um, those in your thoughts. So um, Lexi, I'm going to start with you. Any, any final thoughts that you want to leave our audience with today, uh, things that you're thinking about now?
4: I think so often in higher education around any equity and inclusion topic, it can be really tempting for folks, and I I would group myself in this too, we think, oh, I'd like to add some knowledge and information to what I already know so that I can serve people even better. And I think that what this chapter is asking folks to do is to actually fundamentally ask you to challenge and change your perspective on how you think of things. Mm -hmm. This isn't additive information. How in your interactions will you change your daily interactions with folks so that, you are honoring who they are and where they're coming from. So not, this work isn't additive, it is restructuring. It is the work of decolonization, I think.
1: Yeah, that's really well said. Um, Thank you for that. Uh, Kip, final thoughts?
4: Um,
0: Thanks to all who are here and participated and again to all who are listening, but um, not all small towns are monolithically homophobic. There are some small towns where people feel very uh, supported and and valued. And some students go back to those towns. They value their rural roots. They appreciate where they came from. They wanna make a difference in their their home communities. At a college or university, um, supporting queer students from rural areas is something that's just being started to, to being looked at. And so I'm excited to see what goes farther from here. Um, So, thanks to everybody who's thinking about this. It's important and well-needed.
1: Julia, final thoughts? Yeah, I think um, uh,
3: personally and uh, scholarly with my work in graduate school, I'm really looking at now is moving away from looking at queer, queer rural students in like a deficit model viewpoint where like, oh poor them, they live in the middle of nowhere. Like this their state doesn't have laws that protect them, all these different things. And looking at them, the students as whole beings. And mm-hmm. Um, part of that is encouraging, you know, your administration or your the way your departments or your institution is set up to do more um, tracking of queer and trans students. So not just like an optional identity, like our student involvement or um, another organization, but as like a true form of diversity, as a true form of of. Um, identity in the university so tracking enrollment and that's that comes with its own complications that could be an entirely different conversation but um, that's something we really strive to do here at the University of Idaho is tracking the retention we're tracking the the student's success so we can ensure that we're doing the best we can and providing that holistic support through advising um, and high touch advising so not just like once a year you talk to me or once a semester we talk every month, every week, um, but also to understanding that there is multiple identities as part of that. Um, thinking of like mm-hmm. neurotypes, um, students who now are coming into higher education, universities are needing to scramble to set up st- for students who are on the autism spectrum or have ADHD or have all different types of neuro Um, the neurodiversity within these universities and so we're not only doing that we're also seeing um, that these students are coming out and they're being out and they're providing support and so it's understanding those students as whole beings.
1: Great thank you I appreciate that too. Baker final thought from you.
2: Yeah this what I was thinking kind of goes right along with what Julia said. Um, I think we all of us um, have to continue to educate ourselves and educate Mm -hmm. others on these issues because things are changing so fast. And I think that equality is not something, or equity even better, obviously, was not something we're ever gonna attain because intersectionality is so complex. Um, And we're just now starting to talk about like BIPOC queer people, rural queer people right there. There's so many other things we haven't even really started talking about is very few people are talking about the intersections of queerness and ability like Julia mentioned, Um, I just think that it's something that we're all going to have to continue to be educating ourselves on and continue to think about these different intersections, whether it's place, whether it's ability, whether it's race, whatever that is, um, taking an intersectional perspective to make sure we're meeting all of our students' needs. And, And like I said, I don't know that that's something we ever arrive at, but that's something we should hopefully all be striving towards, so.
1: Wonderful. Well, I am so grateful to all of you for your time. I thank you to Kip and Baker for writing this piece that sparked um, this conversation. And, and Julie and Lexi, I am so grateful um, for you all um, in sharing your experiences, both individually as well as professionally. Um, so thank you for, for contributing to this episode. Um, also just a huge heartfelt appreciation to the dedicated behind the scenes work of our production assistant, Nat Brosy. Uh, thanks for making us look and sound and and uh, read really, really well with our transcript and everything. Um, if you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website um, and add yourself. Uh, you can then also check out our archives while you're there. Um, if you found this conversation helpful, please share it um, with your networks um, and then also share how you're using it in your in your classes or in your professional development opportunities and we'll send you, a pack of stickers for for your um, sharing of that with us. Um, Also just a final shout out to our sponsors, a little bit more about them. Um, This episode was sponsored by Anthology, transform your student experience and advance co-curricular learning with Anthology Engage. With this technology platform, you are able to easily manage student organizations, efficiently plan events and truly understand student involvement to continuously improve your engagement efforts at your institution. Learn more by visiting anthology.com engage. And finally, Stylus is also proud to be a sponsor of the podcast. Browse their student affairs, diversity and professional development titles at styluspub.com. Use the promo code essay now for 30% off all books plus free shipping. And you can find Stylus on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, at Stylist Pub. Um, If you go to our website, you can click on sponsors and learn more about each of them. Again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks to our listeners and everyone who's watching and listening today. Make it count, everyone.